be sure. <coughs> I want to read two texts for us this morning. The first one we've been reading uh, a number of times through the Advent season, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. <coughs> Excuse me. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end, which is to say he will be the Messiah, as any thoughtful Jew would have immediately understood. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. And then in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, <coughs> just four verses from the remarkable opening prologue of the fourth Gospel. We're speaking, of course, of the Word, who is Jesus of Nazareth. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Our Father in heaven, awaken our hearts and minds to the embrace of these remarkable things touching Christ's birth and our own second birth, and make love and worship and faith to reign in our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. In the battle for the soul of the Presbyterian Church in the first third of the 20th century, as was taking place in most other churches at the same time, the historic doctrine <coughs> of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, for one reason or another, played a leading role. There were many who were sure that nothing of any great importance would be lost if it were admitted that the virgin birth were more a matter of legend or better myth than historical fact. It's a story with an important lesson, that of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, but it need not be taken seriously as history. What is more, these same people felt that there would be a great gain uh, to be realized from surrendering the church's historic confession that Jesus actually was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Spirit himself. Modern men and women, men and women of our scientific age, so they thought, 
would be more likely to embrace the gospel if only they didn't have to swallow this miracle story that came down to us from the pre-scientific world. This was by no means the first time that so-called Christians had thought the gospel could be made more attractive to the world if it were in some way harmonized with the world's prevailing philosophy. Arianism was, for example, such a harmonizing effort. And Athanasius's reply to Arianism in the fourth century was in large measure the same reply of J. Gresham Machen to the Presbyterians in the 20th century who thought to make their faith more attractive by making it more similar to the thinking of the world. What is lost in all such efforts is Christianity itself. And in particular, what is lost is Christianity's doctrine of salvation. Said Athanasius, if, as the Arians claim, Jesus Christ is not fully God and fully man, then we are not and cannot be saved to the uttermost by him. There is still that which we must do. And at the end, salvation will be partly Christ's achievement and partly ours. Arius's attack on Christ's deity was finally an attack on salvation by grace alone. That was Athanasius' argument in the 4th century. Those who in the 20th century proposed a reinterpretation of the virgin birth claimed that they were making Christianity's doctrine of salvation more acceptable to modern folk who would stumble over the claims that Jesus had been born miraculously. But in fact, as Machen and many others argued, what they were doing was reducing Christianity from a proclamation of salvation as the supernatural achievement of God in Christ to some form of religious naturalism, some form of self-salvation, employing Christian and biblical vocabulary to be sure, but now using the words in an entirely non-Christian and non-biblical sense. By naturalizing the birth of Jesus Christ, they were naturalizing the work of Christ and the salvation of Christ. At the end, it was argued by Machen and other defenders of the Bible that the denial of the virgin birth amounted to a denial of salvation by God, by Christ, and by grace alone. Take the supernatural out of Christ's birth and you take it out of Christ's salvation at the same time. That was already the case earlier this century with some of the leading Presbyterians who argued against the historicity of the virgin birth as a necessary tenet of the Christian faith. And it would be very hard to argue today in the aftermath of those changes that the message of salvation by grace alone was ever fostered in modern hearts by a willingness to dispense with the historicity of the virgin birth. Those churches that have dispensed with it have, without exception, lost touch with the Christian gospel itself and have attracted far fewer, not far more people to Christ and his salvation. That's true in the first place because the virgin birth is one of the Bible's chief means of demonstrating the fact and the truth and the significance of the incarnation and so the fabulous uniqueness of Jesus Christ as both God and man. Jesus Christ was no mere man, is no mere man, not even the best man who ever lived, not even a man in whose life the Holy Spirit was present to a unique measure. Were he that, he would certainly deserve our admiration, even our imitation. 
but we could not trust him to save us from our sins. No mere man can raise other men up from death to life, from hell to heaven. Christ is utterly unique among men because he is also God. From all eternity, he is God the Son. He did not begin to be when he was conceived as a man in the womb of his mother by the power of the Holy Spirit. At that time, he took upon himself a human nature created for him by the Holy Spirit in the womb of his mother, a nature in which he might live and die in the place of his people. But he always was and always continues to be God the Son. Before Abraham was, I am, said the son of Mary. If people will quibble over the virgin birth, they will surely quibble over the far mightier miracle and mystery of the incarnation of God the Son. Lose the one, you lose the other. But you lose the incarnation, and you lose Christianity itself, and you lose the truth of salvation by grace alone. As one theologian put it concerning the virgin birth, one thing may definitely be said, that every time people want to fly from this miracle, a theology is at work which has ceased to understand and honor the mystery as well, and has rather determined to conjure away the mystery of the unity of God and man in Jesus Christ, the mystery of God's free grace. Jesus Christ is no mere man, and the Bible's demonstration of that is that he had no human father. He has a true and authentic human nature, but it was created for him by the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth is the historical demonstration, the witness born in flesh and blood to the invisible miracle of the incarnation. And our summons to believe that Christ is at one and the same time the creator of heaven and earth and the child of the woman. As such, he is and can be our savior from sin and death. Our faith as Christians rests upon the incarnation of the Son of God. But there's more to the necessity of the virgin birth than simply the witness it bears to the incarnation, and so the person of Christ as the incarnate second person of the triune God. It also serves in the Bible as a witness to the very nature of our salvation. Christ's supernatural birth established a pattern for the supernatural births of all, who are saved. Just as he was born for us by the supernatural working of the Spirit of God, so men and women are born again for him by the supernatural working of the Spirit of God. Just as he could not become a man without a miracle, so men cannot become the sons of God without a supernatural work of divine power. That's the point that John makes in chapter 1, verses 10 to 13 of his gospel, and he makes it in language that draws any alert reader's attention to the similarity between Jesus' birth and that of the new birth of believers. John had just written a very dismal sentence that we had not read, namely that when Jesus came home, for that is the sense of he came to that which was his own, he was rejected. When he came into the world, John has told us, he did not come as an alien. John has reminded us already in his prologue that Jesus Christ, that is God the Son, created the world. He was its maker. What is more, he came to Israel, his very own people. The very people, John will later tell us, Christ had long ministered to. 
as the Son of God. But they were the people who rejected him when he came among them as the man to save them. That's the tragedy of the rejection of Jesus Christ. He was rejected by the very people who ought to have loved him and welcomed him with the greatest joy and love. <coughs> but as if to balance that great tragedy, John does not let us think that everyone rejected the Lord Christ. No, there were some, a small remnant indeed, who received him for what he was and loved him for what he had come to do for them. The bulk of the people rejected him, but some received him. How was that? How did it happen that these few people received from him the right to the title sons of God, members of God's own family with God the Father as their father and the Lord Christ as their elder brother? How was it that they recognized Jesus of Nazareth as God's Son, the Messiah and the Savior of the world, when the multitudes did not? Well, John goes on to explain. They entered into God's family, the way everybody enters a family, by being born into it. Who were born, he says, of these children of God who believed in Jesus? That's strong language, a powerful image, for John uses the word commonly used for the action of the male parent in the begetting of children. They were begotten. And how were they born? Obviously, John's not referring to their natural births as human beings. He's speaking of the second birth, a spiritual birth, an awakening to new life that he will call in chapter 3 of his gospel, being born again, or being born from above, or being born by the Holy Spirit. Everyone who lives in the world is born, but only some of those who live in the world are born in this second way. And how is it that they who believed in Jesus were born in this second way? John tells us that they were born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. All human power, all human initiative, all the ordinary way of birth is ruled out. They were born by the recreating energy of the Spirit of God. Nicodemus, you remember, will stumble over this in John chapter 3. He wonders how a man can be born again. He can't enter into his mother's womb a second time, can he? Nicodemus asked Jesus. No, said the Lord. Flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit to spirit. A man must be born again by the working, the mysterious working, the powerful, sovereign working of the Holy Spirit. But no one can see the kingdom of God who is not born again, who is not reborn in this spiritual way by the Holy Spirit. As commentators on John 1.13 have long pointed out, nothing can explain the quite peculiar phrasing of that passage except the supposition that it refers to the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus. The point is that the process whereby those who receive him become the sons of God, are reborn or regenerated as sons of God, is as much due to the sole activity of God as was the birth into the world of him who alone 
in his own right is the Son of God. The point is established by the simple comparison between Luke 1.35 and John 1.13. Mary asked Gabriel how she could be the mother of a child, seeing that she was a virgin and hasn't got a husband. There's no male activity or energy here, which ordinarily is required for a child. And the angel replied that it would come about by the Holy Spirit coming upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. John, in turn, says that those who believed in Jesus were born into this new life, not by natural means, not by a husband's will, but by the power and action of God, which he then goes on to explain in John chapter 3, is the power and action of the Holy Spirit in particular. We've seen in our recent studies in Genesis how the Bible and its reporting of history establishes patterns of theological understanding, illustrates eternal theological truth in the specific temporal events in the history of salvation which it chooses to record and in the way in which it chooses to record them. And here it is no different. The virgin birth of the Lord Jesus, his birth by the supernatural act and power and grace of God is seen to be a pattern for the rebirth of every sinner who will ever be saved and brought into the sonship of God's family. The Son of God was born a certain way, not by human, but by divine initiative and power. And those who will be the sons of God must be reborn in a like way. By the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit and by his creation in them of a new nature with new spiritual powers and capabilities the recognition of Jesus Christ as God's Son, one of those capabilities. Believing in him, following him, more of those capabilities. No one can come to me, Jesus would later say, unless the Father in heaven draws him. He's saying the same thing in another way. How does God draw but by the inward recreating, renewing work of the Holy Spirit? Just as when the virgin birth is denied, there is at work a theology that will inevitably, eventually also deny the real incarnation of God the Son. So when the virgin birth is denied, there is a theology at work that will inevitably deny, eventually, the new birth as a necessity for salvation. When the new birth is conjured away, it will soon be denied that a supernatural, mysterious work of divine power in the heart and in the life, remaking and renewing the soul is absolutely necessary if a man or woman is to be saved. Deny the virgin birth and soon the supernatural character of faith and salvation will be denied and salvation will be left where all the rest of men think to find it in an effort to please God, an effort of which they think themselves entirely capable, naturally capable. Deny the virgin birth, and before long you will have denied the vast gulf that separates human beings that are the sons of God from human beings that are not the sons of God. Because no longer will you believe in that mighty, that supernatural, that miraculous work of divine power that alone is capable of turning a son or daughter of wrath and of the devil into a son or daughter of God. You remember William Wilberforce, the English evangelical 
member of parliament, who played the leading role in the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. Wilberforce, the politician, of course, moved in circles where few people were Christians. He had a number of unbelieving friends whom he would talk to about Christ and salvation. One of these was William Pitt, a fellow MP who would later become prime minister himself. Pitt, though he was a member of the Church of England, was not a Christian. Wilberforce had often asked him to accompany him to hear some evangelical preacher, but Pitt had always refused him. But one day he finally relented and agreed to accompany his friend to hear Richard Cecil. Cecil began his preaching, uh, preaching during the days of the Great Awakening. And by this time, he was clearly one of the greatest preachers in the England of that day. And that particular day, according to Wilberforce, Cecil was at the height of his powers, preaching Christ and the necessity of believing in him with a forcefulness and a persuasiveness that Wilberforce felt sure would break through his friend's stubborn resistance to Christ and the gospel. All through the sermon, naturally, he was wondering what Pitt was making of this argument and that appeal. He found out only moments after the service was over. While they were still leaving the hall, Pitt turned to his friend and said, Wilberforce, I haven't the slightest idea what that man was talking about. And so it was with those to whom Jesus came. They couldn't make any sense of him either. Even when he lived before them in flesh and blood, even when he performed the most astonishing miracles, even when they heard him teach the truth in a way they had never heard the truth taught before. They did not see him as the Son of God. They did not understand or appreciate what he was saying to them. They would not believe in him as their Savior. They did not see that it was necessary for them to have any particular opinion about him at all. Their minds were closed. Their hearts were hard. Their souls were dark. And so it's always been, as Pascal put it in the Pensees, to make a man a saint, grace is absolutely necessary. And whoever doubts this does not know what a saint is or what a man is. Such is the darkness of fallen human nature. Such is the virulence of our natural rebellion against God. Such is the determination of our will never to submit to God, however polite, however religious we may appear. Such is our aversion to the very idea that we would be as guilty and as needy and as bad as the Bible everywhere says that we are. Such is our revulsion at the very idea that we have such a desperate need for a Savior such as Jesus Christ to do for us what he did, that it is no more possible that we will turn to Christ for salvation, that we will humble ourselves before God and confess our sin and need and desperation. It is no po more possible that we should forsake the world and our own flesh to follow Jesus Christ than it was possible for Mary, a virgin, to give birth to a son. But what is impossible for man is possible for God. No man can truly say that Jesus is the Lord unless thou take the veil away and breathe the living word. 
Then, only then, we feel our interest in his blood and cry with joy unspeakable, Thou art my Lord, my God. You must be born again, the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus. No one can see or enter the kingdom of God unless he be born again. No one can say, he would later say, that Jesus is the Lord, except by the Spirit of God. Such fabulously important words. Something we should think about often in regard to people we know who are not saved and who must therefore be born again by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit and the mighty working of God's power, lest they never be saved. And in regard to ourselves, to ensure both that we are not thinking naturally about our life in Christ. As if it could have come to pass without a great work, a staggering work of divine power wrought inside of us. And to ensure that we are properly grateful and full of wonder that such a thing should have been done in us in me, in you, such as was done in the Virgin Mary when the human nature of Jesus Christ was conceived in her by the power of the Holy Spirit. You think that's astonishing, and it is. But it is no more astonishing than what has been done in you if you are a Christian today, a son of God. And you women... It's the way the Bible speaks of you, sons of God. That's a great compliment. In that ancient world, it was everything to be a son. It was very little to be a daughter. Legally, in regard to inheritance. So in the Bible, everybody's a son. The men and the women together. Remember, we're not talking about a particular human experience. The Bible shows very little interest in your experience of these things. The new birth is given to men and women, boys and girls, in many different ways and at many different times of life. For many, apparently, like John the Baptist, the new birth took place when they were still in their mother's womb. I've always wondered if that were so in my own case. It steals silently upon them before they have any knowledge of the revolution that has taken place within them before they know anything about what it means to be born again. Others are overshadowed in the middle of their lives, but still, even for them, their own experience of the new birth differs profoundly, one from another. Some are unaware of the change the Holy Spirit has brought to pass within them until they have reflected over time on the remarkable revolution that has overtaken their beliefs, their convictions, their loves, their hatreds, their direction in life. For others, the new birth produces an almost immediate experience of spiritual crisis and sudden and wrenching reversal of thought and life. It's an experience of ecstasy and illumination. So it was for Augustine in the garden of that Milanese villa as he heard the children chanting on the other side of the garden wall and ran to pick up the Bible and let his eyes fall on the last verse of Romans chapter 13. So it was for Spurgeon in that primitive Methodist church that snowy Sunday morning when he was just 16 years of age. And so it was for John Wesley in the 
balcony of the Moravian Church, listening to the reading of the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the Galatians. And so it was for some of you, not many, but some of you, who seemed to feel the new life within you at the very moment it was given by the Holy Spirit. Like Wesley, you could have said at that moment, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And there are a few, a very few, who are born again just before they die. Like the thief on the cross, they find new life and new light and new understanding and new conviction and new love within them just as the old life is about to be extinguished. The Bible does not relate the new birth to any particular experience of it on the part of the children of God. It is a secret, mysterious working of the Holy Spirit. Jesus will tell Nicodemus that it's like the wind which you cannot see. You can only tell of its coming and going by its effects. When does a woman know that she has new life in her womb? Not immediately. The knowledge comes only afterward. In Mary's case, when did she know that she had been overshadowed by the Spirit of God and that a human life was growing within her? The Bible says nothing about it. We're left to assume that Mary learned that she was pregnant in the way of all women. It matters not. It's not Mary's experience of the supernatural conception that's important. It's the reality of that conception within her that matters to us and the entire world. Do you know that you're a child of God? That the living God is your own heavenly Father? Have you, as John puts it in chapter 1, verse 12, the right to call yourself God's child? No greater blessing, no greater security can be imagined than that, to be God's own son or daughter. As Zanchius, the Italian reformer, said, it's far better to be a son than to be a saint. Do you love God as your father? Do you know that he loves you? as his son or daughter? Do you trust him to provide for you as a perfect father always provides for his children? Do you know that when he rebukes you and disciplines you, he does it as a wise and loving and faithful father who disciplines every son and daughter whom he receives? No one has, no one ever can join the family of God except by the new birth, and no one in whom the Holy Spirit has done this mighty and mysterious work will ever belong to any other family than God's. The man Jesus Christ was called the Son of God because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of his mother, the Virgin Mary. Sinners today are called the sons of God because they have been begotten by the Holy Spirit in a like way. Both works that which made Jesus the Son of God and that which makes you a child of God are works of divine power, miraculous works, secret and mysterious works. Perhaps it's for this reason that the world cares so little for the claim of the virgin birth as it celebrates Christmas. It sings of it, 
but without understanding or interest, just as the Jews sang of the Messiah and did not even recognize him when he was standing before them in flesh and blood. You see, people who are not born again and do not understand that they must be born again cannot see the true marvel of the virgin birth. Their own need for such a miraculous, mysterious birth has never entered their minds. What shall I say to you at this Christmas time? To those who are the children of God by the new birth, I say that in all the miraculous marvel of the birth of Jesus Christ, you are to wonder over and ponder and to marvel at not only his own birth, but at your own, which was like it. And give praise to God, not only that Jesus Christ is God's son, but that you are as well. It took as much divine power to accomplish the one thing as the other. But what shall I say to those of you who either know or suspect that nothing so supernatural, so mysterious, nothing so revolutionary or transforming has ever happened to you? Shall I tell you to do this or do that? No, there's no doing, nothing you can do. You must be born again. You will believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved only if you are born again. And that new birth does not lie in your power any more than the birth of Jesus Christ lay in Mary's power. But you can wait upon God for that work within you. You can pray to God that he would grant you such a new birth as he has given multitudes without number before you. Pray this in Milton's words, Thou celestial light, shine inward, and the mind through all her powers irradiate. There plant eyes, all mist from thence purge and disperse, that I may see. And while you pray and plead with and wait upon God, Remember this, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Amen.